0: Welcome to Vet Talk with Dr. Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. For over 20 years, RX Vitamins for Pets has been providing leading-edge, condition-specific nutraceutical formulas for veterinary professionals around the world. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or you can give them a call at 1-800-792-2222. Hello, and welcome to Vet Talk. I'm your host Dr. Rob Silver and I'm very excited today for the opportunity to speak directly with veterinary professionals from around the world who are experts in the webinar in the webinar topics that I provide to veterinarians. Today's show, we're talking to Steve Saito, and he's going to share us his expertise in um, veterinary cannabis. And um, Steve, I originally um, learned about Steve when I was speaking at VMX and. Somebody came down and said, boy, there's a, there's a technician upstairs talking about cannabis and he's really good and he's really smart. So I got really, uh, and he's really funny too. I got immediately jealous. I go, oh, what's this guy doing, you know? And I went and listened to him. And in fact, the guy is an incredible encyclopedia of knowledge about cannabis and his sense of humor is to die for. So Steve Stephen originally started working in college to become a registered human nurse, but um, he did not enjoy working with humans as patients. And I guess I should first say hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. I kind of putting the horse before the cart there. Uh, <laughs> how, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good and excited about our interview today. So, um, because he didn't enjoy working with human patients, he became a registered veterinary technician and then obtained multiple certifications focused mostly on anesthesia and pain management. And he's now an expert in that field. He's an award-winning international lecturer on the topics of anesthesia, pain management, cannabis, and best practices in research. He enjoys teaching and he serves on advisory boards. He's a key opinion leader for multiple pharmaceutical and device companies. He's also chief operating officer for the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds and the Veterinary Cannabis Academy Facebook and their web pages as well. He's currently employed with a dream job at Stanford University. We'll ask him to tell us a little bit about what he's doing there, and uh, he also was a column coordinator for one of Nature's journals and has contributed to numerous textbooks. And really, that was one of our most recent engagements was when um, Steve asked me to contribute um, a couple of chapters to a new and upcoming textbook. That he's um that we're all being involved in with Springer Nature. So Steve, welcome today. Um, it's great to have you here. Um, say what was it that originally got you interested in veterinary cannabis? Let's just start off with that question.
1: Yeah, so uh depending on how honest we want to be on the podcast, um uh, I my first experience with cannabis was was purely in high school and college with recreational purposes and uh as I've gotten older and and hit that threshold of 30 years old plus, uh, you know, started noting a noticing a difference in just my general health and sleep patterns and eating patterns and whatnot uh, as an adult, and definitely uh, believed in the therapeutic use of cannabis in general for people. And then working in the Bay Area, started having a lot of. Uh, patients, uh, uh, owners asked about things like CBD. And, uh, again, pulling from my, my own personal experience, most of these cases were kind of palliative. Maybe they had different uh, types of cancers. Maybe they were just trying to keep them comfortable in their later stages of whatever disease process are going with. Um, so I, I entertained the idea with these pet owners and, um, you know, said, Hey, if your animal is, going to be passing soon let's yeah let's keep them comfortable let's let's try this um and then just because i am kind of a a research nerd i started looking for some of the the papers out there on this stuff and uh much to my surprise despite all the people uh telling me there is no research there is no research uh coming across all kinds of published research yes it wasn't necessarily clinical uh, research like we we expect uh, for most drugs that we use in the clinic. But there's a lot of preclinical data as far as dosing, as far as potential side effects, as far, as as far as potential interactions with other drugs. And certainly lots and lots of research on different diseases in lab animal models. And what I think people and practitioners forget is lab animal models include dogs and cats. So there was information out there. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh and once I got comfortable utilizing these types of products in those more palliative terminal animals, I got comfortable enough to say, let's use these for non-terminal or palliative care uh situations. So my next bridge was osteoarthritis, right? That's that's really where we have a most of the data right now is for osteoarthritis. And that definitely complements my specialization in in uh pain management anesthesia. So just all kind of uh, built upon itself and then snowballed. And um, then I just, you know, dove deep into the, the research aspect of it and started uh, helping with some studies and writing some stuff. And then uh, definitely have to give credit to you. Uh, when I started speaking about it, you were always someone I always uh, went and listened to and was like, wow, this guy is, is kind of cutting edge and I want to be like that. And uh, so I took a lot of my cues from you to be honest.
0: Well thank, well, thank you. I think you know. My, I think my own origins were, were very similar in that I had some early exposure to it as a youngster, and then um, became an herbalist, interested in the herbal aspects of veterinary medicine. And then, when in Colorado, it started to become more legal, shall we say, and we start and clients started drifting into my exam who had been using it themselves and using it on their critters. I started to see that, in fact, there was quite an amazing effect of this herb on the critters and then I started as a nerd just like yourself, I started looking to see, well, is there any research? And I was amazed at how much research had been done, most of it not in the United States though. Italy, um, Great Britain are great sources for that. But um yeah, so you've really taken that quite a ways. Currently, what are you what is your current um work that you're doing? You've you've just recently taken this new position with Stanford. You've You've described it as a plum of research precision. I'm curious to know what is it that uh, has got your um, got your interest now. Yeah, so I am a lab manager at
1: Stanford University for a neurobiology department, and obviously, the endocannabinoid system is intricately involved in our uh, neurophysiology, and um, that is something that we are discussing right now with with formulating these studies. Obviously, it's a big hurdle, academia. Uh, human and veterinary medicine, in general, has to, to uh, kind of weed through all the the bureaucracy and the stigma that still exists uh, surrounding this particular topic. So, certainly, uh, my interest is is now going to be looking at this stuff for things like anxiety, uh, maybe stereotypic behavior, um, and certainly just other therapeutic benefits that we see with some of the the lab animal species. Uh, that are very similar, if not the same, to what we see in our companion animal friends.
0: Well, that's, uh, that's quite, a, um, quite an honor for you to be working at such a prestigious institution. And I'm sure that the research that you're working on is going to really be um, very useful to us in times yeah. to come. Getting back to our conversation about what got us interested in, each of us interested in veterinary cannabis, both of us, I think, have taken that ball and we've carried it. Quite a quite a quite a distance. Um, most recently, you and I were engaged in a mutual project of um, helping to provide content for a soon to be published veterinary textbook on veterinary cannabis, being published by Springer Nature. And um, I was really honored that you chose me um, to um, provide some content for a few chapters. Would you like to tell us a little more about that textbook and what we know about when we might? Hopefully, be able to see it um, available in, in general to veterinarians.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that textbook is called uh, "Cannabis Therapy in Veterinary Medicine," and I was lucky enough to have you open and close the book. Actually, you're the you you wrote the first chapter and the last chapter. Ah, um, bookends. Yeah, so that was cool, and that was a book, really. I think out of necessity. You know, you have a, a textbook out there. Uh, which is great, um, but since your publication, which you're redoing, you know there was a lot of stuff that had come out and I wanted kind of a more comprehensive uh, text with individual chapters with specialists that have used cannabis uh, in patients. So we have a neurology chapter, we have an oncology chapter, we have the nutrition chapter, which you also helped write, uh, and we have a basic pharmacology chapter, uh, a wellbeing chapter, which includes behavior as well. So it's it's really a text where a practitioner can go to flip to a chapter for the specific patient that they are interested in using products for and kind of get a, a fundamental understanding of, of the data that's out there, suggested uh, use of products in those specific cohorts of patients. Um, and hopefully if they're like us, just kind of nerdy and just want to know all the things, they'll, they'll read the whole text and not just a specific chapter uh, for whatever they're trying to use it for. We are expecting a digital release, hopefully, uh, mid to end of December. And then the print
0: will be out in uh, early next year. So very, very excited about that. It is exciting. And and I'm really glad to hear about the digital edition because as rapidly as things are changing and as many new studies are being published on a regular basis every month, every year, um, you know, information is changing. You know, like, for instance, it been, you know, how we administer it, you know, what are the be- what are the optimal ways of administering? What are the optimal blends in terms of, you know, um, phytochemical fingerprints and things like that? So that's that's good to know. And I have to say again that that Springer Nature would seek you out to edit a textbook like this. I think also speaks highly of your of your expertise and credentials in this area.
1: You know, thank you. Yeah. You know what's what's funny about that? I was just telling my colleague that. Uh, I I was throwing a fit one day and I was I was telling her how tired I was of, of helping with textbooks because there are a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's oh a long, mm-hmm. dragged out process. Um, and what's even more frustrating is oftentimes by the time it's published, it's two or three years uh, out of date, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. that's super frustrating. And I was swearing to myself, I would never do another textbook. And then I got the email from Springer. I was like, oh my God, this is like, one of the best publishers. I absolutely have to do this. So uh, I uh, went
0: forward with it anyway. <laughs> it's it's exciting. And I think to be able to have a veterinary cannabis textbook such as that will lend more credibility to the veterinary use of of cannabis, CBD in particular, because of the scheduled nature of THC. It makes it a little bit out of reach at this point in time for veterinarians and for, for most veterinary professionals um and and i've been as i've been speaking widely and, and i know you have as well we've been urging and encouraging our veterinary off um audiences to um to engage politically with their local state legislatures in order to see if we can't insert language into the uh, medical marijuana laws to give to sanction veterinarians to be equally empowered as our human medical counterparts so um I, so, I wanted to speak specifically um about a paper that you 're a co author on because I think because yep. uh, in my podcast um, um, earlier this week, um I went over the a practicum as far as um how to select a product you know um, issues regarding safety and efficacy, and um the study that you um were part of. Um, reviewed 29 uh, different products taken off the shelf. It was blinded. No one really knew what those products are, and I think that's the best way to do it. Um, and you analyze them extensively um, using a very reputable um, 17025 certified laboratory to analyze them, not just for potency, for the the, the, um, the presence of the cannabinoids and the terpenes, but also for contaminants, for residual solvents and um, I really love it when I get to speak with um, with the, the people who are actually involved in the studies because I spend a lot of time reviewing studies and, and explaining them to my audiences. And so to be able to get some insider information would be just wonderful. So I don't really know what questions to ask you, but I'd like you to expound <laughs> on that just a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the the big thing that we have to deal with in veterinary medicine – besides this the stigma that still exists in human medicine as well with using cannabinoid type products in our patient uh, populations is choosing a product and and what product is going to be worthwhile and safe for our patients and so that's really kind of what spurred this this whole study was what's in this stuff, especially because there were two uh, reports with human products showing that there was about 70% uh, or there was discrepancy in about 70% of the products that were pulled for this human study with what was on the label compared to what was actually in the product itself. And those products largely were just looking at the cannabinoid concentration. So how much CBD was in there compared to what the label says. And so we actually pulled 30 products, even though the, the title says 29. And we had to disqualify one of the products because one of the products used one of those glamorous uh, marketing schemes of saying uh, hemp oil, right? Or hemp seed oil. And so when people hear that, they kind of assume, oh, there will be CBD in this. But as you know, hemp seed or hemp stock oil has little to none. Um, And so we had to disqualify that product because that product was just a hemp seed oil product without any CBD in it. So we disqualified that one. Then we're left with 29 other products Um, that did have CBD or were supposed to have CBD concentrations in it um, and found (laughs) that uh, it was quite variable. Um, And thankfully, out of the 29 products that we did test, um, a majority of them uh, were within this kind of 10% margin of error that we consider acceptable for uh, non-FDA regulated animal supplement products. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I, I was happy to see that a majority of the the products were within that 10, 10% margin of, of error for the label, um, which gave me a lot more comfort in using veterinary specific products, maybe not <laughs> human products. Um, and then we also, uh, as you mentioned, we went a little bit beyond just the cannabinoid levels. So not only CBD, we looked at 10 cannabinoids altogether. So we looked at uh, uh, their native forms or acidic forms. So like CBDA, we looked at THC, THCA, we looked at uh, Delta-8 THC. Uh, we looked at CBG, we looked at CB, uh, CBDV. So we had 10 different cannabinoids that we looked at. And then we also looked at 20 different terpenes and kind of identified out some of the more common terpenes that we saw in their concentrations, which I think is really important for us as veterinary practitioners and pet owners to understand that these terpenes And the addition or the inclusion of these molecules with CBD only helps things, right? Um, It it can really add to the efficacy or the therapeutic effects that we would expect to get from a product. So we looked at that um, from multiple different products to to see the concentrations. If there was anything exciting, and one thing that we did find um, was there were a couple of products that smelled very hempy. They they smelled like that classic uh, flower, right? And you would think, oh, wow, this product, because of the way it smells, it smells familiar, it smells like cannabis, is going to have high levels of CBD or other cannabinoids in it, when in fact, it was just a really creative blend of terpenes with no cannabinoids in it whatsoever, uh, which was disappointing. Um, And I think what was more disappointing were those products were the same ones that were more expensive. So, what we found was the more expensive the product, the less cannabinoids it had in it as well, which was just an interesting kind of trend
0: that we, mm. we noticed. It's kind of deceptive, really, on the part of the, yeah, the company. Yeah, it's totally deceptive. You know, yeah, Because you and I both know that the cannabinoids have almost no odor at all, that it's the terpenes. Yep. You know? yep. You're listening to Vet Talk I'm with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. I am... Rob Silver, and I'm speaking today with Steve Saito, one of our um, one of our experts in veterinary cannabis. Thank you, Steve, for coming today. You also mentioned in the study that um only seventy five percent of the products actually linked their um their lot code to the certificate of analysis. Could you explain why that is so important?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I was actually pretty pleased with seventy five percent
0: We could do yeah. better though
1: you know? yeah, oh, I agree. <laughs> especially compared to some of the human uh, products out there. So the certificate of analysis, as you might've discussed on your previous uh, podcasts, are really important for uh, owners and for veterinary professionals to assess uh, the the concentrations of the cannabinoids, the terpenes, and some contaminants uh, that could be in the products that we need for dosing these products appropriately or choosing the right kind of product for the specific patient and then, obviously, looking for the safety levels. Um, and and so, kind of my rule of thumb is, if a company, if you're you're looking at a specific product, and a company is unwilling to give you a full certificate of analysis, I, I don't buy the product, or I tell the client like maybe you should look at a product that the company is willing to give a full certificate of analysis. And I think it's really important to to note as well when we say a certificate certificate of analysis what that encompasses at least for me or, or what i want to see um a certificate of analysis is not only going to be just the cannabinoid or the cbd concentration on there uh and hopefully the terpene concentration but hopefully we're going to have other things in there like residual solvents right to see how much of hexane or butane or whatever other uh, solvent they use to extract some of these compounds from the plant is left over in these products. Um, obviously if the, the product smells like butane or something like that, I probably wouldn't use that either. <laughs> um, but we should also have things in there like uh, pesticide and fungicide analysis. We should hopefully have in there um, uh, mycotoxin uh, testing as well, bacterial testing. And then one thing that we kind of uh, looked at in this particular study was the elemental analysis and looking at uh, four major um, contaminants. Uh, And so like some of the the products in there in this particular study did have higher levels of arsenic and a a couple of them had higher levels of lead, which obviously isn't necessarily something that we want to give to anything, let alone one of our sick fur babies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I believe one of the products had so much lead in it, it fell outside of the federal USP for safe uh, um, levels to consume. Um, And then one of the products had uh, significant levels of arsenic, again, treading that line and even crossing that line of what is safe to consume per federal USP standards, which is just a comment on the the USP uh, standards for the, the federal government. They are kind of on the high end. I, I my expectation is a lot lower than what the USP is, <laughs> so uh, uh, mm-hmm. it is concerning, and it's
0: it's uh, it, it's concerning. We'd rather not see anything that's Absolutely. potentially toxic because um, some of those are, you know, some of those will um, um, will be absorbed by the tissues and, and be retained, and so even small doses over a long period of time could wind up. With having enough tissue accumulation to potentially be toxic, and and it's known that the cannabis plant is it does what we call phytoremediation, which means it pulls stuff out of the soil, which is one reason why it's so important to find an organically grown um, cultivar of of hemp or of yeah. cannabis if you're looking at um, you know medical cannabis for humans, and. Um, and lead and arsenic are common contaminants. I've seen some CAs that have cadmium in them as well, and cadmium is kind, oh, of,
1: absolutely. kind of scary. You know? in, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. In, in those regards. So, um, you know, one thing, one comment I'd like to make is that um, I think that it was an error to omit that 30th sample because the 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 study really serves i think as a you know as an evidence based educational piece for veterinarians you know to, to look at the reality mm-hmm. of the many many products there in the marketplace and to see that reality that it was just a hemp seed oil that was you know amped up with some terpenes would be in itself quite illustrative of that particular uh, category of um of consumer um um um, um who had the word, but of, of, um, <laughs> <laughs> of not informing the consumer completely of what's in it. I, my mind is is a blank as far as whatever that word is I was looking for. I had a senior moment there.
1: <laughs>
0: so um, I, I'm curious. In in the PowerPoint, in the uh, presentation I gave this week, I don't know if you had time to, to see that or not, Um I, I saw part of it. Um, I have to be honest,
1: I had a long surgery day, and uh, I came home and uh, totally crashed, even though I wanted to see it. but
0: I did get the link to rewatch it, so I do plan okay. on it okay that's <laughs> that's good um, and i I could happy to send you the powerpoints, but in the very last slide i I talk about where do you you know where I think veterinary cannabis is headed, and um, there are a number of places that you know I think we're going to see. Um, new products and new developments, you know, in the next few years. Um, curious to know what your thoughts are on that. I I think that we are really
1: going to start um, – well, it, that's a little bit tricky. I, I guess I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I think people like you, I, uh, Gary Richter, some of your other guests uh, that you have that are familiar with these types of, of products – are really going to delve deeper into finding specific formulations for specific treatments for specific disease processes in animals, because I think what we're finding is there are going to be specific uh, cannabinoid terpene uh, formulations that are going to be more effective for certain diseases compared to other things. Um, I I think there's going to certainly uh, uh, be that type of formulation necessary Uh, For things like cancer, Uh, we've seen some of the greatest uh, cannabis cancer researchers out there. David Miri is is one that comes to mind out of Israel, published some human studies looking at um, various cannabinoid and terpene profiles on different human cancer cell lines and finding some cancer cell lines are very, very um, reactive to these products or, or different concentrations of cannabinoids and terpenes. Whereas other ones, it has almost no effect. And, you know, I'm familiar with some in vitro uh, work that isn't published yet, where uh, we we saw kind of the same thing. We saw almost no reaction for four different cancer cell lines to CBDA, the acidic form of CBDA, the native form, and very good reaction to CBD. And then you mix those two together with some terpenes, and holy cow it 's almost as effective as chemo. It actually was as effective as chemo without all the negative side effects. So I think as we progress in the research in our clinical use we 're really going to start to to um, kind of pull out the specific formulas that are going to be specific to certain diseases and I think that 's going to be really, really critical. I think on the large the large um, In the large picture, uh, for people that are just kind of getting into cannabis medicine or interested in it, um, hopefully we're just going to have to have that that understanding of the nuances of dosing. Um, I think that's very difficult for especially veterinary professionals to understand. We're so used to, here's a cut and dry dose, or here's a few cut and dry dosages of a particular medication. When it comes to plant-based therapies, especially cannabinoids with terpenes and all the other fun compounds in this stuff, each patient is gonna act and and respond a little bit differently to not only different products, but different dosages. And it's gonna be dependent on their own physiology, right? We've talked about the endocannabinoid system and how elegant it is. Uh, there There are so many nuances to cannabis medicine. So I'm hoping in big picture, veterinary practitioners will start to understand some of these nuances in dosing for their patients. Yeah.
0: Dosing is very context specific, you know, and yeah. and that's why, um, you know, my recommendations and yours are as well are to, you know, start at a moderately, a moderate dosage and test the water, see how they do. And from there you can yep. go up or go down either way. Yeah, agreed. I'd like to talk a little bit about the the what you call the native cannabinoids or the raw cannabinoids, and um, what I think is interesting. and I'd like to share this: is that you know the a lot of our medical marijuana culture now originally began from the recreational marijuana culture and the the okay. the, the great deal of of interest that the public has in the recreational aspects of THC. And it's known that the acidic form of THC is minimally, if at all, psychoactive. And so there's been a lot of looking into the THCA fraction in terms of, you know, being able to provide the benefits of THC with not this major downside, because most people that are into medical marijuana aren't in it to get high. They're in it because they want to get better. Um, and so in order to um, activate, as they call it, the THC, they've had to heat the, the plant material to a certain level so it can drive off that acidic fraction, you know, that's on the THC, and that then makes it psychoactive. And as a result, we have thought for many years that you needed to do that, well, just for the for the years that we've been looking at the CBD industry, that you needed to do that for CBD as well. So okay. I find it um, really fascinating that that really when you get – and and I'm an herbalist and, and generally, you know, we believe that the whole plant extract, not modified by heat or other processes, usually has the best efficacy. And so I think that's really brilliant that we are now looking at that because in a way we, we actually can, the, the plant has dual usages. I mean, we've got the, the decarboxylated, the activated cannabinoids, and we've got the the uh, native cannabinoids and they can be used together. They could be mixed together at ratios, as you're saying, to, to specifically target, you know, the best, you know, uh, a patient for a specific condition or specific, you know, specific kind of um, presenting complaints.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I am definitely a, um, nature knows best uh, kind of guy and uh, you know, we always try to mess with her and, and change things up, and we always end up regretting it in the end. So I, I'm definitely right there with you with using a whole plant and using it in the most natural form as possible. Um, what's, what's interesting about some of the, the acidic forms and some of the other studies I've been involved in is, is we found that these acidic forms are actually absorbed better. Compared to the decarboxylated forms, right. uh, which is really interesting, especially when we're talking about dosing. There's so much controversy about whether we should put this oil or put the drops under our tongue or hold it in our our, our cheek pouch or uh, you know apply it topically and you know not ingest it into our stomach. When we found that you know actually these acidic forms get absorbed quite well in the stomach, um, and and it's significantly higher levels compared to the decarboxylated forms. Uh, And one of my other um, uh, favorite cannabis researchers, Ethan Russo, uh, I was at a conference with him and he said out loud, he said, there is nothing that these acidic forms can't do that these decarboxylated forms can do. So uh, to me, you know, again, like, that gives a lot of validation for our, our our ideas and using kind of the native plant, cold pressed, colder extraction, not heating things up, not trying to uh, uh,
0: change uh, what uh, the plant was originally giving to us. It's true. The, the, that carboxyl group, that acidic moiety, you know, on the molecule um, makes it um, less totally lipophilic. You know, it gives it a little bit of, you know, of, Hydrophilicity, which allows it to be better better absorbed, and um, I also think that the um, the evidence is is really i think pretty incontrovertible that administering it with food is the way to go because Agreed. and because what we 're finding and the mechanism of action is that it oftentimes will bypass the it'll be absorbed more by lacteals than yep. by The um, portal circulation, therefore, you know, bypassing the massive first-pass liver detoxification that we see of these cannabinoids and and promoting, you know, higher blood levels longer. I mean, the PK studies that we've seen, three to five times higher. And this is consistent, you know, not just in dogs, but in humans and in laboratory animals as well. So I've changed my recommendations from giving it on an empty stomach, sublingual, submucosal, To giving it with a small amount of food. In fact, for a dog, I think the ideal fatty food is canned cat food, you know, and, and, <laughs> and giving it um, before a meal, but not putting it in the meal because, you know, the animal may not eat the whole meal at that time. There may be another animal in the household, like in my household, that, you know, is opportunistic and gets to munch down the rest of it. And you want to make sure they get the full dosage. So that's been my recommendation. I'm actually really happy that you brought up the the
1: absorption. Um I'm see I'm starting to see companies now uh really push uh different carrier oils whether it's MCT or LCT and and suggesting that LCT is bypassing this portal vein shunting and and all this other stuff and and I think you really hit the nail on the head with we are getting absorption in the stomach especially with these acidic or these native forms as well. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is important. And it's just one of those other myths that uh people have to kind of <laughs> learn to just push through and, and understand
0: uh the science behind this stuff. I'm skeptical of the carrier oil um issue. Um I think great. that I, I think there's enough different carrier oils out there and we're still seeing decent efficacy. I think it really has to be with food and part of the digestive process to get that absorbed, you know, um, definitely. Um, so I I guess I'm, I have to take a break here. Excuse me. Um, you're listening to vet talk with Dr. Rob Silver sponsored by RX vitamins for pets. I am Dr. Robert Silver and I'm talking to Steve Saital about veterinary cannabis and welcome to our show. If you're just joining us. Um, so Steve, you, you're a busy guy. Um, you know, I, I, people say that to me, they don't see how I can get as much done as I do. And quite frankly, I'm not sure how I do it either. And, uh, I'm sure you get those questions as well, as prolific as you are, but you know, what about, what about Steve himself? What are your hobbies? What are your interests outside of our, of your very busy life and our profession? You know? Well, when we're not in a pandemic, um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to go social dancing. Um, I, I love going out and partner dancing, um, oh. typically Latin style. So like salsa, mm-hmm. pumas, that kind of thing that is a huge hobby of mine. And then plants. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it's so frustrating because I'm seeing a bunch of people I'm 33. I'm seeing a bunch of people my age, uh, you know, put on their social media, Oh, I'm a plant dad. I'm a plant mom. You know, it's become this trendy thing. Uh, I like to think I've been doing that a lot longer than uh, this little recent trend, but I do love my plants. I rented a, uh, a 28-foot RV and then a cargo van to move my plants cross-country when I was moving <laughs> cross-country recently because I couldn't get rid of them. They're my babies. And uh, uh, so, yeah, definitely uh, indoor planting and outdoor planting of, of various species of
0: plants. Um Let's see. I I, also I, I saw that. you had a tree in your pri- your previous apartment, and you were able to transport that as well.
1: I did. You know that's like a seven hundred dollar tree now. That's <laughs> one of the fiddle leaf uh, ferns or mm-hmm. fiddle leaf fig trees. And mm-hmm. then I had um I had a couple of like conifers, and um I had a a weeping cherry tree, which was really beautiful. So oh yeah, I had trees in my my place. I had thirty foot ceilings, so I was able to accommodate them. Um, uh, and then cooking, I love to cook. So those are kind of my, my points of meditation and and hobby. What uh, style of cooking
0: are, are your favorites?
1: I typically do Latin styles. Um, Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I am not Brazilian, but I love cooking Brazilian food. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I wish I was Brazilian. Yeah. Um, well we once had a, a sidebar, Steve and I once had dinner at a Brazilian uh, steakhouse. And oh yeah. It was, it was we, amazing. They had yeah. to wheel us out in the wheelbarrow. We'd eaten so much. Yeah. 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 It was a good time. So
1: yeah, those are, those are kind of my things and, uh, just hanging out with my dog as, as, as social as I may appear on, uh, media or on the interwebs or whatever. I actually am a, a big homebody and I like to be by myself and, uh, just kind of veg out with a good book or crappy TV.
0: <laughs> mm. Well, it's it's it's, an, it's it is good, I think, to get away from the matting crowd and have some some me time, some quiet time. It, it helps a lot. Steve, before we conclude today, you know, is there anything that you feel you know a need to express to our audience? Because um, I know you've just got um, a bunch of gems of wisdom um, that are very actionable.
1: Yeah, so one little gem uh, that really, really surprised me and actually makes me very concerned about our health in general and and what we're eating and consuming um, ourselves is uh, when we were doing this this study that we talked about today, looking at uh, contaminants in hemp products for animals, is um, the contaminants found in some of the carrier oils. Uh, Mm. Something that I noticed in other people's research and experience and certainly my own experiences, we can take the uh, CBD concentration, right? That we get from the plant, test that all day long. It tests out beautiful. Uh, There's no pesticides, no fungicides, no elemental contaminants, whatnot in it. And then we get what we think is an inert uh, uh, carrier oil that should be safe for consumption. And we do a, we do analysis on that and find that, holy cow, these carrier oils are so, so dirty and, and just contaminated with so many pesticides and, and just so many other things. And what's really concerning is we pulled some traditional cooking oils off the shelf like at Safeway. Tested them and they are just loaded with all kinds of nasty stuff. That and, is scary. Uh, you know, I've I've never been a person to really promote eating organic or non-GMO, but now that I understand uh, some of the science behind of it, I'm like, holy cow! I want organic uh, cooking oil because of the the scary stuff that we saw in some of these analysis from oils that we are eating every day uh, and putting into our bodies. So I guess that's my other my little just.
0: Gem of wisdom. Well, uh, I'm really <laughs> glad you. I'm really glad you added that, actually, because yesterday I had a very long conversation with the uh, the head of the analytical laboratory that I use, and we were talking about. He was actually telling me, he says, you you would be amazed at how much contamination we find when we test the carrier oils. But he said even organic medium chain triglycerides were loaded yeah. with with stuff you don't want to be putting into your body. And that also brings up another point that we, we didn't really emphasize when we talked about the study and talked about looking at certificates of analysis for products is that there's two types of certificates of analysis. You can do an analysis of the raw material before it goes into the product, before you add in those contaminated, potentially contaminated carrier oils, and there's a certificate of analysis for the finished product. And there's a lot of opportunities for contamination in that time period between which the carrier oil is being blended in with the raw oil, being bottled, being running through tubing and everything else in the bottling plant that can uh, introduce that. And so, although I think it's really good to see what the raw oil looks like, really – in terms of where the rubber meets the road, in terms of trying to avoid contamination in a product, you really need to get a certificate of analysis of that product. And that's why we emphasized the need for having lot numbers on the product. Many C of A's show you actual photographs of the product itself, which also gives you kind of a, a visual identification. So, yeah, that was a very good point. And, um, and thanks for bringing that up. And I agree with you. and 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 if you know, and it kind of makes you even worry about things that are labeled organically grown. You know, they may be organically grown, but what happens after they're grown organically before they get put into the bottle? You know, (laughs) there could be a lot of opportunities for contamination. Agreed. 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 Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time today. I know you're busy. You're actually at work, um, this afternoon, um, at Stanford and, um, again, I appreciate your insights. I appreciate your contributions to the veterinary profession and veterinary cannabis in general. And I hope that perhaps we can have another chit chat like this sometime in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. I wanted to thank uh, Steve Saital for spending time out of his busy day to uh, talk with us about his experience with veterinary cannabis, the information, the gems of wisdom that he's offered today were truly priceless. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. You too. This concludes today's Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. I am Dr. Silver, and I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to join us for future shows by hitting the subscribe button so you won't miss a thing. Until next time, this is Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. Goodbye. That Talk with Dr. Silver has been sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or give them a call at 1-800-792-2222.